0: From the truenorth.fm podcast network, this is Philosophia, a show where we look at philosophical concepts of the classical tradition and their application to our lives today. I'm David Shank, and on last week's show, we discussed intellectual cowardice in the episode Intellectual Rabbits. This week, in March of the Impeccable, I'm going to look at What happens when that species of intellectual cowardice, so rampant in academia today, but also in popular life today, sort of uh, blossoms into a full-blown moral ideology? And what happens to us when we go that far with our unwillingness to look at certain ideas on account of them being too dangerous? In 1990, in a syndicated column, the humorist Dave Barry published one of the greatest things I have ever seen set to print. It went by various titles, but in the Washington Post, it was called Thar She Blows. Elsewhere, a truncated version of it that only covered one incident was called The Far Side Comes to Oregon. Mr. Barry opens up the episode with the sentence, I am absolutely not making up this incident. In fact, I have it all on videotape. For the first several days after reading this article of his, I refused to believe it. It couldn't actually be real. He had to be pulling our legs. Except for the fact that he wasn't. All of it is absolutely real. And because we have the internet now and YouTube, all of it is immediately viewable on YouTube. You just enter the search terms, Oregon and exploding whale. And what you will see is one of the greatest testaments to human stupidity in history. Because you see, in 1970, in a beach town in rural Oregon, there was a giant dead beached whale washed up. And the thing had been sitting there for a long time, and so it was utterly stinking. It was not just starting to rot. It was rotting horribly, and the stench was unbearable. So they had to get rid of this thing. The task of removing the whale carcass was given to the Oregon State Highway Division. Why they were appointed to this is a mystery that I still have not yet been able to find an answer for, but they gave it to the highway division. The head engineer of this project settled on the decision that because they couldn't get forklifts and just push it back out to sea, it was too big, and they couldn't cut it up into pieces because none of the workers wanted to go near the thing, the stench was too unbearable for them. The only remaining option was Like Dave Barry, I am not making this up. Dynamite. Half a ton of dynamite placed in the sand underneath the whale's carcass. They dug, you know, into the sand underneath the whale and placed half a ton of dynamite underneath this thing in order to blow it up into very small pieces, thinking that the seagulls would then eat the small pieces and the larger chunks that were left over could then just be, you know, forklifted and gotten rid of. It was too big to bury, it was too big to push out to sea, and they didn't want to have to cut it up. So they set the dynamite on the hypothesis that at that position and that angle, nearly all of the blast would go out into the ocean. A little bit would go onto land, but not too much. And then the remnants would be easily disposable. Now, this became a spectator event. Townsfolk showed up to watch the whale detonation. They parked their cars, stood a few hundred yards away from the whale, right up from the beach, and watched. A detonation. And a news crew was there. KATU in Oregon was there to report on the event. So we have this all on video now for posterity. In fact, shout out to KATU. They had just last year they digitally remastered it in honor of the 50th year anniversary of the detonation. And so you can go to their YouTube channel, KATU. is the the station in Oregon, and watch a digitally remastered 4K version of this. I will only show, you know, the money shot of it on here with the explosion. But for the full video, go to their YouTube channel. So you see the countdown. It goes 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, you know, all that. And then there's this gigantic explosion that even Michael Bay would envy. And everybody's clapping. But you see these not at all small, actually quite large pieces of whale blubber. Sort of just hanging in the air going, spiraling around, you know? And then the tone of people's voices changes. <sighs> First, they're clapping and cheering, but then you start hearing thump and splut. And people start murmuring and a woman says, here come pieces of my God. And then the camera cuts off and the news announcer comes on to say that in his very serious 1970 newscaster tone, what followed next was a mad rush for survival. They got rained on for better than a quarter mile radius. They got rained on with giant and small rancid pieces of whale blubber all over them. Miraculously, there were no injuries that day. A lot of hot showers, no injuries. One guy's car did get crushed. The roof of it got crushed in by a giant piece of whale bone and blubber a quarter of a mile away. It was extraordinary. It was a testament to human stupidity. Well, like Dave Barry, I absolutely am not making up this incident. In fact, I have it all on video. Oklahoma University, a state university, held an anti-racism training session on anti-racist rhetoric in their first year writing program, their freshman writing program. And because we were under the age of COVID, of course, it was a Zoom session. And so they recorded it and saved it and put it on the university's hard drive on the network. And so a whistleblower leaked it to YouTube, where it will forever now live in infamy. This is a testament to human moral stupidity. An overabundant censoriousness. Because you see, it's my thesis that once we begin to indulge that moral cowardice that makes us intellectual rabbits, where we are unwilling to entertain certain propositions, not because the evidence tells us they are probably false, but because we're pretty sure they will hurt people's feelings, if true. Once we sell out on intellectual honesty like that, the next natural, not quite inevitable, but natural and I think culturally inevitable, it's going to happen with someone somewhere. It doesn't have to happen with you. It doesn't have to happen with me, but it'll happen somewhere. Inevitable in that sense. The next step is for people not just to live as intellectual rabbits, to live as ideologues, intellectual witch hunters, intellectual zealots who pursue a moral and political agenda of special censoriousness where anytime they see anyone entertaining certain concepts, certain ideas that they do not like, They will do anything and everything in their power to shut them down. And we do live in exactly such an age in academia, in the media, in popular culture. And if you look at just your daily life, even just in our ordinary day-to-day lives, this is happening right now. The training event opens up with all of the normal sort of self-congratulatory speechifying that you generally get with these sorts of mandatory training sessions that universities like to run. There is an element of control freak that I think these sorts of offices just lend themselves to. Control freaks naturally gravitate to the, towards these sorts of
1: administrative offices and functions. In the session,
0: one of the leaders of the session explicitly asserts, and I'll, I have the video of it, and I'll put the clip in, in here right after this.
1: One of the fears is that we're going to get in trouble for this, right? Like we can't tell students that they can't say something in class. Um, but we can. And let me tell you how, right? So the first day of class. I have a, a slideshow like prepared and everything talking about like the overview of the course, what they can expect. And then we talk about like the expectations in their behavior in class and in their writing. And I include these, these two statements in each of these, right? They have to avoid derogatory remarks, critiques and hate speech. If they use any of those things, if any of those things come through in their writing or in their comments, I will call them out on it. And I tell them, I call you out on this. We're going to have this conversation if this takes place in class or on your writing. And I tell them to avoid white supremacist ideas or sources when they're making their own arguments. If they're working to try to persuade a white supremacist to not be a white supremacist, right? To persuade someone against racism, then they have to look at those sources, but they're working to dismantle that. And that's completely different than employing those things and their own ideas. And I explicitly tell them they cannot use white supremacist ideas or sources in their work. They can't use those in any conversations that they have. They will, you know, we'll talk about it if it happens. If it continues to happen, report them for violating the student code of conduct, right?
0: She explicitly asserts that instructors at this state university can and should, and indeed must, stop students in the classroom from expressing unwanted ideas, even from expressing the importance just of entertaining them. Anything that qualifies as racist ideas or what are called white supremacist ideas or hate speech, she says, should be forbidden in the classroom. In the Q&A session, of this event. The very first question is the obvious one raised by someone of how do we know where to draw the line between what is hate speech and what is not, between what is racist and what is not, between what is white supremacist and what is not. She gives no answer to that. They just talk around it. No justification is given for drawing the line here versus there versus There, regarding what qualifies as racism, what qualifies as anti racism, what qualifies as white supremacy, what doesn't, what qualifies as hate speech, what doesn't. But that is the most fundamental question that needs to be answered before any kind of censorious approach like that can be even remotely defended even on their own criteria. I will bet you dollars to donuts, even though I know inflation has done what it has done to the price of donuts. I will bet you dollars to donuts. If Charles Murray were to be cited in a favorable tone from his book, The Bell Curve, or his other book, Coming Apart, in one of the student papers, the teachers would brand that As white supremacist ideas and hate speech, and forbid the use of it. Now, mind you, these are instructors who almost certainly have never read and will never read Charles Murray. I've read him. He's not saying what people say he's saying in the bell curve. They're just what they claim he says. Their only reason for claiming it is that they haven't actually read the book. I know this because I have. <sighs> we are in a moment now in this country. Yes, in academia, but it has long since filtered its way out into wider culture, into K-12 education explicitly, but also into media, into the way things get reported in the news, into entertainment media. What sorts of storylines Hollywood will and will not permit in their movies and television shows into social media and what they will and will not permit to be said on there. It is endemic in our culture today. And the fundamental dilemma with it is the extent to which a good impulse, I've been harsh up till now with the folks at Oklahoma University, because what they're doing really is ridiculous. But I want to be careful about this. It is not my thesis that these are bad or wicked people. These are good people with good motives, not wanting to hurt the vulnerable. I share that motive and I endorse it. I never want to hurt anyone or anything. I get upset. Not very upset, but it bothers me. When I'm driving home at night in my car and I'm hitting all the moths and love bugs and all of that and taking their lives away from them, I wish there were a way not to do that. I think in another life I must have been a Jane... You know, monk or something like that, I guess. It bothers me. I have within me no desire to harm. So these are good people with good impulses, good desires. But they let that desire, the desire to avoid harming the vulnerable, become the tyrant of their lives, just as I spoke about last week. And through that, they become ideologues, they become intellectual witch hunters, as they have done repeatedly over the past decade. We've seen many, many instances of this. The incident with Jordan Peterson in Canada, where he was teaching, was the most famous of them. I knew about the guy because I'm into philosophy and psychology, right? I'm a professional philosopher, but I also study a bunch of psychology. And one of my students turned me on to his stuff because he had all these videos on Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger, two of my greatest philosophical loves. Nobody had heard of Jordan Peterson at that point. Yeah. But then that California bill, I think it was CA 15 or something like that was its name. I forget the bill about requiring instructors to use certain chosen gender pronouns and all that. That made him famous because he refused to bow to it. And the witch hunts began and they came after him so hard. They came after him so hard. He couldn't sleep at night because his job was being threatened. Now, he, unlike many others, succeeded. In his fight with the Witch Hunters. But they came for him. And they didn't waste any time in doing it. And what I have learned. Throughout academia. No matter who you are. They will come for you. If you dare. To disagree. With the Witch Hunters. (sighs) Most dearly held moral and political convictions, they will come for you. And they will do anything they can to destroy you. With no conscience, no compunction, no residual worries about might they be going overboard with the way that they are treating you. This brings up an important concept from the classics, from classical philosophy, especially one of my all-time favorites, Augustine, but also Aristotle. How easily, through our good motives, we become what we hate. We turn into that very sort of person We swore never to be and have dedicated our lives to preventing through an abundance of moral self-confidence an overabundance of moral self-confidence, sureness that what we are doing is right and just. We are on the side of the good and those who oppose us are by opposing us evil we become the very sort of intolerant, hateful zealots that we are trying to prevent and to overcome. Military buddies of mine explained this to me years ago. You fight someone long enough, you start to look like them. Behaviorally, I mean. You start to act like them. And there's a simple reason why. Aristotle especially understood this. You are not what you think. You are not what you have. You are your habits. This is the driving concept of virtue ethics in Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And so natural law theory in Aquinas' moral philosophy and in much of Christian philosophy, including my own, I'm a natural law theorist, big time. I'm not an archly conservative one. I'm more of a middle of the road sort of guy, but on natural law theory, I have become philosophically convinced over the past five years. You are not what you say, you are not what you have. You are not which goals you are aiming at. You are which habits you indulge or avoid. Which habits of mind, which habits of action, which habits of thought, which habits of which impulses you indulge and which ones you do not. that actually shapes who you are the justifications that you make up after the fact really don't count for much you are morally whichever habits you perpetuate in yourself and if i allow myself to begin to perpetuate a habit of censoriousness i become a censor Do you see that point? Because it's an important one to see. The people who are behaving this way in academia and in the media do not do it out of malice or out of a desire to make the world a worse place. It's not like they wake up in the morning thinking, you know, Vincent Price style, how can I make more people suffer? They do it out of a desire to protect, which is a perfectly reasonable sort of impulse to have, especially when you look at someone vulnerable who is being made to suffer unfairly. But if I have nothing, if I allow nothing to check that impulse in me, if I never allow anyone to tell me that I have gone too far with that impulse, it will become the tyrant of my moral life. And I will become a zealot and behave the way zealots always behave. Whether it's a physical burning at the stake or just a figurative one through getting someone deplatformed and kicked off of social media and kicked out of their job and all the rest of it is irrelevant. I become that sort of person. That's what's happening to us right now. But for some fun of the Oregon clip at the very end, I want to conclude this vodcast with... My most basic observation, my most basic critique of that Oklahoma University anti racist rhetoric training session and the kind of ideological fervor that we have in academia and the media and social media in America today. The real sin of the participants in this training session is not. Found in what they believe. It's not found in their ideology. It's not found in their moral convictions. It is in the manner in which they hold these positions. It is the censoriousness, not that they reach this conclusion or that one, insofar as they think enough to reach a conclusion. No, 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 no. The real sin is in the way we hold our moral and political convictions today and on the right and the left and the middle and all the various marginal sides in american politics today this sin is equally rampant the kind of moral self-certainty the kind of insistence on my side is right and those who disagree with me are bad for disagreeing with me. That is the true intolerance. That is the true evil that we are committing. And by continuing to permit it over and over again as a habit, becoming. We are turning ourselves into monsters, not by our politics, but by the manner in which we conduct our politics. Insofar as I will not permit anyone to present evidence for the proposition that my most basic moral convictions are erroneous, that my most treasured beliefs are on the available evidence, probably false. I have made myself an ideologue and therefore a liar because to be an ideologue means to refuse to entertain evidence for certain propositions. Politics in America has always been a blood sport, but today, It is a decayed form of a blood sport. Today, it is Yankees versus Red Sox, but with a real desire to kill members of the opposing team. You cannot tell me there is any moral virtue in that attitude and have me take you seriously. You know that's wrong. We all do. And yet we indulge it. That's the real moral failing I see in this. They have become these sorts of activists in academia, but also in the media. They have become that much more combative species of intellectual rabbit the ideological zealot. The rabbit is still there, but now it's a rabbit that's itching for a fight. Perhaps the greatest testament to human stupidity in the Oregon whale explosion. Isn't that they put the half ton of dynamite underneath that whale carcass? It's that, from what I'm told, Years later, someone else tried it again, expecting different results. This kind of ideological demand for adherence, this kind of zealotry, history is littered with it. Why are we expecting different results? today. This has been Philosophia on the True podcast network. Thanks for joining me, and I hope to see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on Philosophia and the other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit www.truenorth.fm. That's www.truenorth.fm. FM. Did you
1: get a one? you get a one? All right, Fred. You can